Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. I'm very excited to have Dr. Grace Chris on because I met Grace while I was in graduate school at Columbia. She was my professor, and I have worked with her for the last five years on the 9-11 study. She's our supervisor and in charge of the study. And most of what I've learned about working with families and helping them heal is through Grace. She's, she does incredible work with families, and she's been my mentor and my supervisor and my professor. Yeah. And could, I wanted to say a little bit about the study that they're doing because it's, it's an amazing study. I think they started out six months after 9-11, and they're working with the firefighter widows and their kids. And are there like 60 families, Heidi? Grace, how many families? Yeah, we have about 50 families 50. and 125 kids, 125. but we've also been working with the larger group of widows through questionnaire and, and other programs. And now we're expanding. It's exciting. So we're expanding the study to include siblings and parents. And, and they do the firefighters, yeah. yeah. And they do home visits, which, which is an amazing thing. Right. But some of these people live quite a trek out there. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, Heidi, why don't you introduce Grace to our audience, and then we'll chat some more about this. Okay. I'd be, I'd be honored to. Um, our, ga- our guest today is Dr. Grace Chris, and our topic is healing children, helping children heal after loss. Dr. Grace Chris is an associate professor at the Columbia University School of Social Work. She has gained international recognition. Um, she has gained international recognition for her work in the bereavement field. Dr. Chris has written numerous publications, including Healing Children's Grief, Surviving a Parent's Death from Cancer, and FDNY Crisis Counseling, Innovative Responses to 9-11 Firefighters, Families, and Communities. She is the director of the FDNY CSU Columbia University Family Guidance Program, a research study which examines the impact of loss over time on families who experience the death of a firefighter in the World Trade Center. Dr. Chris' work has been influenced by the death of her grandmother, who died at 26, leaving her mother, then age five, without a parent. Welcome to the show, Grace. Thank you. Hi, Grace. It's great to have you on. Hi. Um, I had the opportunity to do a little work with uh, Heidi and Grace, so I got to know Grace and all your wonderful things you're doing and the great people you have working with you. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about, uh, first of all, your your uh, grandmother died and your mother was raised without a parent. How did, Has that influenced your work and, and going into this area? Absolutely. There's always, a, uh, I think, a professional but, uh, but a personal uh, motivation for most of us uh, as well. You know, professionally, I was the director of social work at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center for about 12 years, so uh, it was there that I really... Uh, begin to hear a lot about families in which a, there were young children and the parent was dying of cancer. And um, many of the parents were coming to our social work staff asking about how could they prepare their children, how could they communicate about what was happening. And then we realized that we really didn't know uh, a lot about what would, you know, we knew some things from our training but we didn't know a lot about what would be best and what was most helpful to families. So there we developed uh, an intervention that we worked on, was funded by the National Institute of Mental Health. Now, about what year would that be? Um, that was in the early 80s. Uh-huh. So people were just starting to get into... Probably in the middle 80s. Yeah. yeah. People were just starting to get into right. thinking about that there may be some actual... 
information. Well, there was, yeah, there was the opening up of communication. Mm-hmm. You know, the permission. There's this gradual permission to really talk about hard things mm-hmm. in the culture, I think. Especially to children, wouldn't it? Especially I mean, you'd want to have them avoid talking about that, right? Right. Take them to Disneyland or whatever. And since people felt that they really should be talking about hard things a little bit more than they had been, but they, they didn't know really how to talk about these hard things, and so they, we were getting more and more requests. And, of course, it's happening more and more today, too. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so we did this uh, intervention where we started working with families about three to six months before the parent died, and we followed up for a year afterward. Um, it, it would be great if all everybody could do that now, wouldn't it? So you follow up for a year. Well, after. it's actually a model that we used in the FDMY program, and uh, that really uh, there's a, a great deal of discussion about that today for uh, a number of reasons, which I, I could talk about. Let me just mention about my my grandmother mm-hmm. and how that. So that you know, part of my motivation for getting into this field was was working at Memorial, but also um, my mother's mother had died uh, when my mom was only five years. Age. And then her, two years later, later when my mother was seven, her younger sister, who was named Grace, died of, um, you know, and, uh, pneumonia. Oh my goodness! The things right. you know that people yeah. died of, and those children died of in those years. Right. And so she was uh, really deeply affected by those two losses. Though she went to live with uh, an aunt and had a very, uh, very stable home life. Uh, but uh, she, I heard many, many stories growing up about how hard it was uh, to, to have your mother die mm-hmm. and to have your sister die. And, of course, my name was Grace. I was named after my uh, aunt who had died. Right. And so it, that it was sort of embedded in my psyche. <laughs> and, and you could also hear those stories. Don't you think that's part of it? Some people just can't hear those stories. It, well, it becomes part of your identity, too. It's almost right. as if it did happen to you. It, you know, it becomes part of how you see the world. You mean that I could listen to those stories? Yes. Yeah. My mother and I always had a sort of special communication, and that was always part of it, the story of her life uh-huh. and how how I understood the, the many losses that she had endured. And, uh, and then over the years, how she had tried to integrate them into her life and her thinking. It sounds part like you had quite a remarkable mother. I think so too, Grace. She was really before her time. She was uh, an amazing woman and had seven children. <laughs> we always said that she kind of thought that she might lose one or two along the way. Which is such normal thinking, as you know, yeah. when you work in this field. I mean, once you have the death of a child or something, you feel like it can happen. Yeah. So you, so she kept on, but you know she worked very hard to uh, keep us all thriving, and therefore, right. And where did you fit into the family? Pardon, I was I was the third. I uh-huh. had an older brother and sister, uh-huh. and uh, a younger brother and three younger sisters. Uh-huh. So I was sort of there were were sort of groups. So I was one of the, the top three, and then there were two in the middle and two uh-huh. at the end. Um, but yeah, so that that uh, she was a remarkable woman. She was, uh, you know, died uh, actually uh, shortly after nine eleven. Uh, so the two experiences became kind of uh, merged in my uh, my life as well. Uh, but she was uh, uh, incredibly optimistic, <laughs> uh, no matter what uh, what situation she confronted. She took care of my dad for ten years, and 
And I guess nowadays we're talking about that as resiliency, right? Resiliency. You know, she was only five foot tall, but <laughs> but she was really very, very uh, resilient. And, and one of the things I, I noticed over the years was this whole process of how this kind of experience one integrates over a lifetime. Uh-huh. You know, that uh, she talked about it in different phases and different ways. But for me, it really... It really um, sensitized me <coughs> uh, to how important these issues were. Right. Well, and, and we that, saw that there was no real beginning and end to the grieving process, that it comes in waves. Absolutely. And different things would trigger memories for her, it sounds like. Exactly. And also, one of the things that we're going to be talking a lot about today is how children do start out with these stories. They integrate them through their lives into adulthood. Uh, I think that's really important. And, and your wonderful book... Um, on healing children's grief, surviving the death of a parent from cancer. In there, there are you have everything divided into age groups and things, so people can really pick it up and take a look and see if they have younger children or older children and well, see. Well, that's what, what I love about that. it, Mom. For our listeners, if you have kids that are a certain age, you can buy Grace's book and look at it as a reference book. And if you have a seven-year-old and you're wondering what are they going through right now, you can go right to that section and read Kate clinical vignettes and how. Grace and her team have worked with these kids. Yes, it's wonderful. And how, you know, uh, how we take this into adulthood and uh, when we come back from break. Yeah, I you think know, it's interesting how, how powerful that is. Uh, the reporter from the New York Times that wrote up about this book when it first came out um, came to interview me, and the uh, first thing she said to me is, you know, my father died when I was seven, mm-hmm. and my life has never been the same since. And so I said, well, what was it like reading the book? And she said, you know, I went to the chapter on six- to eight-year-olds, and I cried my way through every page. She said, because I wondered why didn't people understand me then? Mm -hmm. Nobody understood that I was suffering then. I was angry and she gave, told me something about what had happened around that time that made her angry. And, but people thought I wasn't grieving. Right. And yet that has totally, uh, because nobody understood what the experience was like. And when I read the six to eight year olds, it matched my experience. Exactly. That's great. So people can go back and revisit. You were talking about the study you did at uh, Sloan Kettering and where you had a year follow up. And um, I know with 9-11 you're following up, but in most uh, crisis situations where kids die suddenly, like uh, Scott, our son Heidi's brother, was killed in an automobile accident in his, with his cousin, and they were, um, they call it dead on arrival or whatever. And uh, so we never had any follow-up. And, and I was wondering what thoughts you had about it. Are they still doing the follow-up at Sloan Kettering? Uh I, I, I'm not, you know, sure exactly how long I thought, but it's a very important uh, question, and especially for sudden loss, um, there often has been no follow-up. Mm-hmm. And studies have shown that people who have sudden loss have a much harder time accessing resources in the community mm-hmm. because people don't understand it or are afraid of it, and you haven't been in touch with health professionals. Right. So that in a health setting, you already know certain health professionals and people you can call and say and, and get some guidance in terms of follow-up care if they don't provide it themselves. So I'm, I'm not sure exactly what they are, but there's a great deal of work going on in the medical community about how to deal with uh, 
people where a parent has a life-threatening illness because now with medical advances, these situations go on over many years. Mm-hmm. And how to best uh, talk, communicate with your children to prevent them from being traumatized. That's by the, a hard question, too, because I was going to ask you, and it's probably too broad, how do you prepare kids for the death of a parent or a sibling? Mm-hmm. That's, you know, a really critical issue. I actually just published an article on this in the journal, CA, a cancer journal, for clinicians in 2006, for physicians Mm -hmm. to look at the various, you know, responses of children at different ages to uh, the, during the anticipatory phase. One of the things we found from a memorial study was that kids had their highest levels of depression and anxiety and expected loss before the parent died, mm-hmm. and that those responses were then reduced afterward. That is, that so that that means that's a really important time to pay attention to, the preparatory period. It's a tough time to work with because people are very anxious, very upset, uh, but it becomes an important time uh, for improving their response afterward. With sudden loss, you they, don't have that opportunity. Hope too, Grace. Hope that the person won't die. Pardon? Aren't they also holding on to the hope that that person really won't die? Well, we found that the kids at different ages are are thinking different things. So, for example, the six to eight year old children don't really understand. They understand something really terrible is going on here, uh, and they fear catastrophe. One eight year old said, "I begin to think." Maybe mom would die, dad would die, maybe grandma and grandpa would die, maybe the whole world would end, mm-hmm. and no one would be here. So it's not as much kind of the loss of the person, it's just the fear of of catastrophe. Now, do they have that after? Because for our audience out there, most of them have actually had a child die already. A, a, a parent. And, uh, a, or, you know, or a parent. Or a parent, right. yeah. Well, that, was, that was the anticipatory. So that's the kind of anxiety that you have to try to bring into perspective, that they're, you know, that the parent, uh, when they know the parent is dying, but but that the family will continue and that there will be support and care and love. Now, what about and then afterward, a these kids felt very, actually, once it's happened, kids would often say, because we were working to, you know, help them prepare. You know, I was shocked and I was upset, but I was prepared. Mm-hmm. My parent told me it could happen. And so actually they felt much relieved, not because they weren't weren't grieving, but because the catastrophe they feared did not occur mm-hmm. and that they could go on and life could go on. So that's, again, from the child's perspective. Now what about with a sibling, do you know? I mean, would they have the same... Kind of feeling after a sibling died, or you know, yeah, I th- I think in part, again, um, that that ahead of time, children are responding to the context. Yes, I think there's some relief afterward because it's just the fear of this situation and becomes so intense. Well, and I think Grace, it would be so scary for kids to watch someone get very very sick and ill and deteriorate. And like you said, not know what that's going to look like and, and when the end is going to come. 
Well, I think the 68-year-old, it's a question of how will I survive. Mm -hmm. I think with the 9 to 11, we saw they could understand it better. You know, they're the young scientists, and they use facts and information. So we counsel physicians to to let them talk, give them a lot of facts. Often these are the kids that want to know about chemotherapy, radiation. They want a, a kind of dialogue of exactly what is happening here. And they may show very little emotion, either in the pre or the post. Mm-hmm. or have outbursts of emotion, and then be more factual. Mm-hmm. And we found that that was, you know, really very helpful in reassuring them. And then afterward, they were also able to uh, process more intellectually, at least facts. They didn't have larger abstract concepts, but they had more factual knowledge. Now, would you say it's important to involve them then? Very, and in a factual way, that's helpful for healthcare professionals to know that it's not like you're not helping them to grieve if they're not crying, but if they're asking you about what the symptoms are, what the treatment is, what they're trying to do to help, how things are going, you know, that's helpful to them. That's part of their their preparatory and grief process. Mm-hmm. So they Grace, may, what would you say to families that are listening that have already had a death and have not given information to the children about about how it occurred? With this age group, would you tell them that they need they need to give some information to these kids, especially if they're asking? I think it's so important to give information. Of course, you give more detailed information to older the older your child is, mm-hmm. and you know less detailed information to a younger child. The amazing thing we saw with um, uh, the 9/11 situation, where were the children three to five, who do not understand the permanence of death or the reality of death. And so um, initially they didn't, they kept asking, when is daddy coming home? Because mm-hmm. they keep expecting the parent to reappear. But, when they, but three years later when they became six to eight or five to seven, what we found is these kids wanted information. Mm-hmm. And, the and they're processing it, right? You're telling our audience out there, they started out, but they've moved into this other stage where they're asking for information still after yeah, five so years. Yeah, so they may ask for information because you didn't give it to them at the time, or they just may ask for it because they're now cognitively developed and they can understand it in a better way and they want a different level of information. They That's want more detail. They want more, uh, and it may be emotional resonance. And that can be upsetting for the parents, can it? When they start wanting all the parents, when they started asking at six, the parents were calling to say, uh, "I don't know if I can go there again." Mm-hmm. You know, it's so hard to feel that again. But they want to talk about how they miss daddy and how they feel about it now. And sometimes they would get other people to come in and do some work with them because it was too hard for the parent to really, you know, go back there at that time. And but they be, what was important to understand that's normal even right. though three yeah. years later. Well, then it might be an idea for parents to get an uncle or something to talk to them. Or a wonderful, I think there are many people that can talk to them. They often want stories about dad. Mm-hmm. They want to express their emotions about it. They want to understand their emotions. And many many parents use grandparents, aunts, uncles, other people if they feel a little bit you know because bringing it up is still painful to them. Um, but the child needs to talk more. That can be helpful. Yeah. There are also bereavement programs that are often willing to do that. I think that's so, even other uh-huh. firefighters are great resources, and the kids love going to the firehouse to find out who their dad was and what he was like. 
write anyone who can give them stories about dad and and talk with them about that rather than that being painful to them. And that's some of the difference with an adult, you know. For kids, very quickly, those stories, especially younger children, are just very therapeutic, whereas to an adult grieving person, they're very painful. Right, and so, and I think it's important to tell people that's normal if they're feeling it's too painful to do it. That's okay. Find somebody else. You're normal. Find somebody else who can do it. Yeah, you don't have to do it all. And don't feel like you made a mistake. Right. It may well be that your child is just now coming into awareness or a different level of intellectual understanding, and so they need to reprocess. Mm-hmm. What, could there be some anger from the child that is just part of the developmental stage? Anger is always part of grief, and mm-hmm. um, and I think it's misun- that's the thing that's misunderstood often when children are angry and disruptive. That's their expression of sadness and unhappiness. Um, uh, why can't you make it better? <laughs> you know, says the seven-year-old. You know, if one one seven-year-old, six-year-old was saying to his mom, if he if he died in the tower. Why can't you build it up again, take him out, and then let it fall down again? Mm-hmm. You know, but anger, I think, is very much part of that. I was the reporter that I was talking about who um, interviewed me about the book said that um, what happened in her family was that for some reason her grandfather decided to tell her at that point, after her father had died, that he wasn't her biological grandfather. You know, there's some mm-hmm. intermarriage or mis- whatever happened mm-hmm. in their background. And she became extremely angry about that information because she felt abandoned doubly. Right. You know, mm-hmm. she heard two losses at once. So after all these years, then she's feeling angry. So, you know, the family it criticized the family criticized her, thought that she was being a very strange child to suddenly get so angry at her grandfather. <laughs> you know, so it's those kind of misunderstandings that often take place. Right. Well, I love that you're saying anger is a normal expression of grief because you do see parents all the time and say, my child's not grieving, and then when you go see the child, they're, they're very angry, and you realize, like you said, that is part of the grief process. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's integral to the grief process um, well, for adults, but also for children, and, and mo- the most misunderstood. And do you want to start, Hyde? Sure. This one is from Sheila in Detroit, and it says, My husband died in an accident two years ago. My seven-year-old daughter is anxious that something will happen to me. How do I reassure her that nothing will ever happen to me without lying to her? Wow, that's a tough one. That's a good question. Good question. Mm -hmm. It's a question all parents have, you know, uh, that he died. And, of course, the age is now seven, and now she's nine. And so... uh, uh, this is something that uh, um, is very normal for her to be asking about that and to thinking about it in a different way. Uh, she's probably processing it much more logically now uh, than she was. So, of course, it depends on a lot of other issues in her life. But, of course, you have to, it, there's no, um, especially with a, a nine-year-old, you can probably talk a little bit more. And it's important to be very reassuring of children mm-hmm. um, that, yes, this was a, a, you know, a terrible event that occurred, but a, an incredibly unlikely one. Um, and uh, to, to really just walk them through that and to help them understand, to reassure them that and it's not lying to them. The chances of something like this happen are 
almost none. Uh, mm-hmm. So onto uh, two parents in one family. But to validate their anxiety and uh, help them find ways to cope with it. Now, some parents, you know, to help, help them understand it's not realistic. You know that that's so great because I think sometimes parents get so anxious that they're they look anxious when the child asks them, you know. So uh, they need to uh, think about this. And, you need to think about yeah. what the child's really asking you. I mean, it, it, because we're thinking from adult terms, like. In reality, we're all going to die. So if I say that I'm not going to die, that's a lie. But that's not really what the child is saying. The child is really needing reassurance that, you know, that you're going to be there for them. And if for some reason, and sometimes children are helped by this, if for some reason something would happen, what would be the plan? How would they be taken care of? But the fact that is that it's not a lie to say, of course, it's, it's highly unlikely, it's impossible almost that that both of you would be uh, would die, and that that's your, you know, and that's your rea- that's their reality. Yeah. So the reassurance is a, is a very important thing. I want to move on because we've got a couple of the other emails, mm-hmm. and I know you've got such great information here. We had a Susan from Freeport, Maine, and she says. My 10-year-old daughter died of cancer after a two-year battle with a brain tumor. People say it is harder to have a child die suddenly. It's been a year, and I'm still in a lot of pain. Do you think it's true? Uh, I think there are different patterns of recovery. Um, in in this situation, the the child, her child, died of brain tumor. Is that mm-hmm. it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. After two yeah. years. I think it's you. You can't really compare losses in many mm-hmm. ways. But from what all we know, uh, they're equally as difficult. Mm-hmm. They may have a different course of recovery. Oh, you know, it may take longer to recovery, recover from a sudden loss. But in the long run, how its impact on you is the loss of the person. Mm-hmm. And so over time, uh, you know, they just may have a little different recovery tra- trajectory. But you can't really say one is harder than the other. Mm-hmm. One may be harder at different t- points in time and harder in different ways. I like so, that phrase. We have different patterns of recovery. Right. I think more and more the research is showing that if you have a sudden loss, you may have more intense early symptoms and it may take longer for those to resolve. Mm-hmm. But in the long run, the way you integrate this into your life and live with it may be very similar. You know, um, I, something comes up to my mind when you talk about this. Um, talk about a little bit about, because I have families talk about whether they saw the body or not, and I know in 9-11 there weren't, uh, sometimes there weren't remains for families. Right. What's happening with that? Because I have people say to me, oh, I didn't see the body and I showed up because people say you're better, you know, that kind of thing. People are, are ambivalent about that. Well, they, they compare it. Yeah, they say, okay, I have it. I didn't see the body, so I feel like my loss is going to be more difficult. Right. That's so important. We know how, how people get into that kind of of um, thinking. And I think these are issues that everyone faces. Mm-hmm. You know, they have to go, uh, they have to deal with those questions. Would it be better if I had seen, if I had looked? I know one mom who didn't look because her brother-in-law said, don't look at the body. Mm-hmm. And she was in such shock because this is one where they found the body early that she didn't. And then for a couple of months, she really went around would it have been better if I had looked and why did I allow myself to be talked out of that and 
she had to really come to terms with, you know, where she was at at the time and how she was relying on her brother-in-law and so on. So, but I think eventually people come to terms with that. You do the best you can under the circumstances. And then it, seeing the body or having the remains uh, doesn't necessarily resolve your grief. Mm-hmm. And not seeing the body doesn't ex- doesn't um, exacerbate your grief. I mean, it may be easier, but in the long run, it doesn't compromise your capacity to recover. Mm-hmm. And that's really important. And that rituals, developing rituals are important for all. I always remember the mom who talked about, because we asked the moms who had not recovered bodies, to talk about rituals they developed with their children that helped them to actualize the loss. And the mom that talked about the locker, that she had four kids and they developed this um, ritual of in holidays and anniversaries going to dad's locker at the firehouse, which was retained, and bringing their favorite pictures and favorite things. Mm-hmm. And it became a whole family game with her four young kids to think about what achievements that they had done they wanted to leave in his locker, what pictures what poems, what books, and um, this was their ritual and how they actualized his loss. And that's very powerful and useful for people. I love that, Grace. And I I remember one of the kids saying, and I brought him some coffee for the locker because he needs his caffeine in the morning. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's so so amazing. Well, we've got another email here from Wendy from Portland, Oregon, and she says, I have a 4-year-old son and a 6-year-old daughter. The six-year-old's twin brother was killed in a playground accident a year ago. My four-year-old doesn't seem to remember, but the six-year-old is wetting the bed. What do you think's going on? So the six-year-old, it was his, uh, his or her, she doesn't say twin that died. Oh, how, how difficult. But, of course, that's all very age-appropriate. The four-year-old doesn't comprehend the permanence of it yet because she's not intellectually or cognitively able to do that. So she may still be thinking he's going to come back mm-hmm. um, and not fully comprehend what has happened here and its future impact, you know. Mm-hmm. So she will probably experience more later. Mm-hmm. In addition, of course, the six-year-old is a twin. And so I don't know the exact circumstances, but there's obviously a lot. And uh, she should probably be talking with someone about how to specifically help him to get some solace. Six-year-olds, wetting the bed, that's very, um, you know, very typical. They're very emotional. He does understand often at that age, now they understand permanence. But they don't understand cause and effect. The big problem with six- to eight-year-olds often is they think, you know, step on a crack, you break your mother's back. Mm-hmm. And I always remember the kid who said her mother, she prayed that her mother would be out of pain the night before she died. And the next day she said her mother died and she said to the social worker, I think I killed her. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so you have to be concerned with the six-year-old, and how he understands yeah. this, how he misunderstands what happened and how he maybe not only terribly misses his, his twin, but also feels it's his fault. Yeah, and I'm wondering, uh, killed in a playground accident, you kind of wonder if he might have been around, too. He may also be having some symptoms of trauma because he may have been there. He may be around. Um, he he needs, you know, some help to kind of deal with that. But I think from the parent's point of view, helping to clarify with him both to 
resonate to his pain, but also to clarify what that it's not his fault, that he didn't cause it, that he is safe now. But, you know, that's a very uh, challenging uh, situation. But it's perfectly normal that they would be at two different places. Yeah. I like what you're saying. It's not, to reemphasize that it's not his fault, he didn't cause it, and that he's safe now. Not his fault, he didn't cause it, he's safe, he will be safe, everybody will take care of him, everybody loves him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good points. What about a, a brand new baby, Grace, or under a year? Have you got any thoughts about that and families? Is there anything you've seen with that? When the parent dies when the baby is under a year? or Yeah, either way, if a father died with a mother or, you know, what kind of things do people need to know about taking care of babies? Because they could just be shuffled off to a right. neighbor or something. Right. Um, there were many babies born after 9-11, as you know. Mm-hmm. And um, many, and that was a very difficult circumstances. I think it was difficult for the mothers. I think, again, in those situations, it took, many of the mothers were, um, you know, it just took them a little bit longer. Mm-hmm to really deal with the situation because while you have a new baby and all that goes into that, I think uh, coming to terms with the, the loss of a spouse, you know, that they all take a little bit longer. Yeah, it's and hard to find time for your own grief when you're taking yeah, a newborn. Yeah, and to some extent you, you put it on hold a little bit, mm-hmm. I think. I know mm-hmm. one mom who um, I was working with who um, was... Um, one month pregnant on 9-11 and just found out after after the funeral. Mm. And uh, so had to, she already had uh, several children. So she had to go through eight months, you know, of pregnancy and and didn't really express her grief until after the child was born mm-hmm. because it was just too hard to do all of that. Yeah. I think it's important for people to, to be appreciative of their own pace mm-hmm. and so that you may put it on, on hold for a while, you know, Mm-hmm. until you're at a place where you can really experience it. Well, and I've heard moms that are grieving so that their babies are more colicky and more, they cry more, and I think it's because babies can pick up on parents' grief. Mm-hmm. Right. It can upset them at times, you know, just make them a little more difficult to soothe. Right. Grace, uh, I just want to tell our audience before we end the show, because this is our last segment, uh, Grace's book, Healing Children's Grief, Surviving a Parent's Death After Cancer, from Cancer, is really a remarkable book. And it's one that I would say that everybody should pick up who has a, a, a child because it's just a wonderful reference book, isn't it, Heidi? It is, and it's on our blog in our bookstore. So you can order it directly from there, and it, they'll link you right to Amazon. So uh, hopefully you'll get one of those books because I've really, I use mine. So, uh, Grace, when we went to break, uh, you were saying something which I thought was so sweet. I wanted to bring it up, and then I wanted to have you tell us about some of the things you're doing now. But I wanted to have you talk about how people bring, um, we were talking about babies when we went to break and how the kids bring them in with their stories. Right. It's so wonderful how many babies were born after 9-11 and how the siblings, the older siblings, often try to uh, bring the young children into the family by telling, keeping uh, scrapbooks and pictures and photos and really showing their younger sibling, what the father was like and telling the story. One mother was telling me her six-year-old, who was, uh, I guess, about one on 9-11, maybe two, uh, the the older siblings were saying, you know, you remember this time we went here with Dad and we did this and this. 
And the six-year-old said, oh, yeah, I remember that. And the older kids looked at Mom like, how could she remember that? She wasn't, she wasn't there. She didn't go there. She wasn't with us. And Mom said, no, 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 no. She wants to have been with us. So let her have that. And I love and that. And that's the way she builds herself into the family. I'll give you one other story, quick vignette. It was so sweet. Where they were going, Mom was taking everybody to... Um, uh, Hershey, Pennsylvania, by herself, and the nine, uh, first time after 9/11, five years at the five, fifth year anniversary, and the nine-year-old said to um, the four-year-old, or five-year-old, I guess by then, who was born right after 9/11, you know, you're going to love going here. It's the greatest place in the world. Everything about it is perfect. There's only one thing that isn't perfect, and that's that Dad won't be here this time. Uh-huh. But, again, ways that siblings have a beginning to talk with their younger siblings bring them into the family story. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that idea of family. Family stories are wonderful. Well, Grace, tell us uh, about what you're doing and, and what's going on out there. Well, as Heidi said, we're working very hard on the FDNY program and moving into this new phase of, of working with the firefighter siblings and parents. Uh, but I'm also uh, directing an organization called the Social Work Hospice and Palliative Care Network uh, that has just become a formal uh, not-for-profit organization. And our purpose is to develop social workers and other healthcare professionals in uh, hospice and palliative care and grief work and to be a resource for education, for training, and for practice as well as for the public about the important issues that are evolving in this area, especially as, uh, you know, palliative care, end-of-life care is a very prolonged phenomena at this time and is presenting particular challenges both for adults and children. So I, swhpn.org. Okay, swhpn.org. S-W-H-P-N. Uh-huh. Social Work Hospice Palliative Care Network uh-huh. at uh, uh, .org. Now, we have a lot of uh, people who um, have had uh, children die that, uh, and, you know, other people die in the sure. family that listen to the show, and they would like to do something um, to help out their community. And is this something they can get involved in as uh, lay people, or is this all professionals? We certainly are uh, anticipating developing um, uh, specialty links to um, and uh, information for professionals uh, around decision making so we really uh, hope to build up our um, you know our, our discussion with lay people about all kinds of programs both with uh, children who die as well as uh, issues in adult is this going to be international then it will be international uh, we're starting uh, national but we certainly intend to be international uh, this is something that uh, has relevance um, in certainly throughout Europe and Asia. There are many developing uh, professionals and interests in both hospice and palliative care and in grief work. That sounds great, Heidi. It sounds like something we're going to want to get involved in. You're already involved in it, but yeah. it sounds like a very interesting mm-hmm. to me. Well, Grace, it's almost time to close our show. And before we do, I want to thank you so much for being on. It's just uh, wonderful information, and hopefully, folks will get your book. But um, have you got some closing thoughts? Well, thank you for having me, and thank you you for all the wonderful uh, questions uh, people have. These are such good questions and such important issues to think about. I think 
the main thing that I think is is so important uh, that you've highlighted here is the fact that children do grieve, but they grieve in a different way and a different time from adults, and that's often contradictory to our experience and the importance of really thinking about them from their own perspective and from their own frame. And just as we as adults have to learn to follow our own time, whether it's shorter, whether it's longer, we really have to come to trust our own time in grief and uh, and the, our own experience and what it takes to help us to recover. It's important to also trust children's time and to understand that it it may be they may experience it in short aliquots, but they will continue to re-experience it and reintegrate it into their identity over a long period of time. And to see all that process is very normal and something that we can be very helpful to with if we um, are open to it and supportive of it and supportive of them being able to really uh, you know, thrive and make this a really integrative and important and valuable uh, experience in, in their life. And it, it sounds like it's kind of just rebuilding and changing your story, isn't it, over over a lifetime? And giving it new meaning each time, mm-hmm. you know, and seeing it as as different and seeing how it has new meaning and importance in your role. One of the wonderful things we saw with the kids, I must say, is how they, what tremendous strengths they developed in terms of empathy mm-hmm. for other children, in terms of ability to understand and face hard things uh, and and wisdom beyond their years in terms of understanding the way the world works. It doesn't mean there's some areas they weren't more sensitive to and maybe more vulnerable to, but they learned to deal with that too and learned to appreciate um, the things that they developed, the good things that happened to them from really uh, engaging with this experience. Yeah. as well, well as some of the, yeah. the tough times. Well, Grace, thank you so much for being thank on you. the show. And uh, it's time to close our show now, and I want to thank Grace Chris. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com. 